I'm really sorry to have to have you stand up and read the entire chapter of the first chapter of Genesis. I couldn't find a place to stop, you know. I needed a, I needed to find a context, and I'm looking at the context, and I'm thinking, okay, where do we stop here? So I timed it a couple of times, and I worked out it's about four minutes. Oh, we can handle it for four minutes. I won't get you to stand on the hymn beforehand, but uh, yeah, so praise God. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. All right. But it's a, it is a wonderful chapter, and it really sets a context for us for this morning. Um, and we needed to set a context, because we're still speaking about the issue of eternity, the question of eternity. And Genesis is the beginning of all things. So Genesis is that book that we need to have that context in. So we'll open in a word of prayer, and we'll get into our study this morning. And I hope it's a blessing to you. All right, let's pray. Father... What a joy it is, dear Lord, to be able to bring your word forward, dear Father, to your people, that we might be able to grow, that we may be able to put our lives and the lives that we have in time in the context of eternity, that we may be able to understand, dear Father, its effect. And we pray, dear Lord, for your blessing upon us. I pray, dear Father, you would give us eyes of understanding, that we may be able to recognize the truth of the scriptures and give us a heart to believe. And we praise you and we give you thanks in Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. So, eternity is not an easy question to answer. Um, there was a youth who had asked St. Augustine, um, now St. Augustine was around in the 3rd century, um, so he was one of the early church fathers he's, he's referred to as, and he asked him, okay, so what was God doing before he made the heaven and the earth. And St. Augustine knew the answer, but it was going to be too difficult to bring it out. So instead he answered, making hell for people who pry into such mysteries. So I thought um, it's, it's a difficult question and a difficult topic to really get into. So, but we've got to ask the question, why is the truth surrounding eternity so important? Why is it so important? It's really because the knowledge of it affects how we live today. It affects how we live today. If eternity doesn't exist separate to time, then the manner of how we live our lives will be limited to its effects within time. Okay? Um, Men like Adolf Hitler would have had no problems doing what he did because everything that he believed affected only that which was in time. He had an atheistic idea of things. It was actually pretty pagan in his ways of, uh, of looking at history, and it only affected what was in time, and it only benefited what was in time. And on the other side of it, you have people like Mother Teresa, who did a tremendous work in, um, in, in India, where she would feed the hungry, where she would care for the young people, and it was a wonderful blessing, but again, the mentality at that time was what we can benefit within time. The concern wasn't for that which was eternal. Noble in its effect? In its effect? Absolutely. Beneficial for eternity? Well, we don't really know. We don't really know in that respect. If, if, they, if she led them to Christ, then perhaps, yes, there was a benefit eternally. So if eternity exists outside time, then according to the Bible, all that we do in time affects our personal existence for all eternity. Jesus made a remarkable claim in Mark chapter 9 
And for the sake of context, it's worthwhile turning to that passage. So if you can turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. If we're looking at the Lord as being an authority on these, on these things, as one who um, is with the Father and knows very well what eternity is, then, uh, then this is definitely a passage worth looking at. He says in verse 41, he says, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And the context in which he spoke was of that of eternity, and we'll read a little bit more in a moment. Here the Lord states clearly that there will be a reward in eternity. A reward in eternity for something as simple as giving a cup of water to one of his own. And it's given to that individual who gave the cup of water. So, um, but because it's also a reward that's given in eternity, we also know that it will last for eternity. Um, let me give you an earthly example. Imagine, imagine having a car that never broke down. You, know, you can imagine buying a car that never broke down. Imagine having a, a house that never deteriorated. You know? Skin that never develops wrinkles. You know? A body that never grows old. A body that never breaks down. Um, a bank account that never diminishes in value. That would be handy. But could you imagine having something that never, ever changes? You see, because we often think that eternity is a really long time, don't we? So when you think about eternity, oh, these things go on for eternity, you know. But the presence that we get within the Scriptures is that eternity is not subject to time. And if that is, is not subject to time, then it can never grow old. We'll go into that a little bit more as we, uh, as we move on. So... In eternity, the reward will be a reward that will preserve for all eternity. Uh, it's why our salvation, our spiritual life-giving work that has been done by the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to in the Gospel of John as everlasting. It's everlasting. So knowing that eternity is not subject to time helps you begin to comprehend why it's so important. In the passage that we're looking at here, we can see the context of it, why it's referred to that point that is in eternity. He goes on in, in, in verse 42, and he says, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believeth in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he was cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. And he goes on, he says, Where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. If thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Fire that shall never be quenched. Sorry, my, I've got to get glasses these days now. I've got to wear these things because these are deteriorating. Okay, my apologies, go back into it. In, where was I, verse 44? 45. If thy foot offend against thee, cut it off, it is better for thee to enter in, halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, 
into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It's amazing this, because this entire passage here, if you were looking at a new version, a modern version, that last verse is deleted. So you don't have that, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. It's deleted in every modern translation. It doesn't, it's not there. But it's a picture of something that is eternal. It's a picture that is forever, that continues on and on and on. Okay, and that's the picture that we're, that we're getting here, and that's what the Lord is trying to bring out. Was Jesus simply being a little hyperbolic? Was he, was he exaggerating the idea? When he, says, when he says something like, verse 47, And if thy, thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Was he just exaggerating? Was, he, was it just hyperbole? Guys, think about it seriously. If it is possible that your eyes, if they offend against God, and that very offence against God would see you in hell for all eternity, would it not be better to just pluck it out? It would be. As God, Jesus was trying to give us an example of how severe eternity is in hell without your sin dealt with. You know? Now we know, we know realistically that casting out our eye isn't going to really make a difference because we've already sinned, you see. You know, we were born already into sin. So, you know, it's not going to make a difference. But Jesus was speaking about something, he was speaking about it in reality. Remember the reason why Christ came. He, cried, he came to save that which was lost. He came to save us, you know. And he would be the one that would be warning about eternity and hell more than anyone else. And you know what? In the New Testament, in the Bible as a whole, Jesus was the one that spoke more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. No one else could even compare to how often Jesus used that particular phrase, which is really, really important. So... Let me explain the significance with respect to eternity. If, um, if you were going to be travelling overseas, now the time is 2016 in this present time, you would have to um, transfer your money into the currency of exchange of that country. Okay? So everything that you earned here would be spent there. Make sense? All right, so what you've earned here would be spent there. Eternity is the country in which all your life's actions and thoughts are transferred. Okay? The medium, the medium of exchange is either wrath or reward. It's either wrath or reward. There will be no mix of the two. Those who are in heaven will not experience wrath. And those who are in hell will, will not experience reward. They will have no gain of reward. Interestingly, however, those who are in heaven will gain what they did not earn. They will gain what they did not earn. Those in hell, well, the Bible says they have the wages of their sin. In eternity, our conscience will be fully informed. Those in heaven will know that they do not deserve to be there. Those in hell will know that they do. So you can see that if eternity does exist... Um, it's a huge impact on our priorities. It's a huge impact on how we're going to be living our lives, on how we're going to be setting things forward, the decisions that we're going to be making. 
Um, and if you know the Lord, uh, then all things work together for good to them who know God, who love God. So our first point, that was just by way of introduction. So our first point is, in the beginning, time began. In the beginning, time began. We saw in the first um, chapter of Genesis, and the first verse, we saw that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know, there's a natural limit to what science can discover. All right? Science can't tell you the truth of all things because it can't discover all things. There's a natural limit to science. Love, for example. Well, can you prove scientifically that love exists? You can't prove love exists scientifically. There's a natural limit. You can't do that. Morality. Science can't tell you judgments of things. It can't tell you whether something is good or bad. It can't tell you whether abortion is right or wrong. It doesn't have a position on morality. It can't have one. Beauty. Beauty. Science could tell you the dimensions of the frequency of a musical note played in one of Beethoven's symphonies, but it can't tell you anything with respect to its beauty. It has no position on aesthetics. You know, it has no position on aesthetics. So I can't tell you whether or not I'm beautiful. And I'm really happy about that. If it was scientifically discovered and not subjective, then I might be in trouble. It also can't tell you anything about logic. Logic is really interesting. It doesn't even know what logic is. It understands logic. It understands that it exists, but it can't prove that it exists. It actually needs to use logic to infer logic, logically. So you can't tell you can't tell you anything about logic as far as whether or not it actually exists. And so too, it can't tell you anything that is beyond the scope of this universe. So every part of creation, every part of this universe, it can work with, but even within this universe, it has bounds on what it can discover to be true. Anything outside the universe, it can't hope to tell you. It cannot prove or disprove the existence of God, for example. It just can't do it. It doesn't have a concept of it. It's exactly the same when we're speaking about eternity. When we're speaking about eternity, see, we can't really comprehend it because we live in a time-bound universe. This world and this universe and everything that we've ever experienced within our lives is bounded by time. We know that anything moves, moves in time. How does that work in eternity? I don't know. Because it's the ever-present now. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In this passage, we have the proto-event, the very first event in history. What, what's, what's history? What's history? Yeah, well, history is... Yeah, it's history. Yeah, very good. Okay, that's really good in this context. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's essentially... It's a, it's a sequence of events in time. Okay, it's a sequence of events in time. And here we have the beginning. You know, the very beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of time. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, it speaks about time. In the first three words of the Bible, we have the proposition respecting an historical event. The very first historical event, the beginning of time. But I want you to think about something really interesting. Because for 2,400 years, from the time of Aristotle, at least from the time of Aristotle, until the time of the 1980s, where Carl Sagan was, was 
proposing particular idea. They believe that time is eternal. It's infinite in scope. Now, I won't go into infinity and explain to you why that's not possible, why infinity doesn't actually exist. We can conceive it, but it doesn't exist in reality. But I'll, I'll, I'll let that go. But from the 1980s, way back until the 4th century uh, BC, we have the position and the idea that eternity is, well, time is eternal. And that's two, that's, well, there's one or two ways of looking at the word eternity. The first way is that eternity is infinite in time. And the second way is that, infinite, uh, that eternity is not subject to time, it's not in time. Carl Sagan in his book and later PBS special Cosmos said that the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was and all there ever will be. Albert Einstein put a... You remember his famous formula? E equals MC squared, okay? So E equals MC squared. His problem with that was that within that formula it gave the impression that the universe has to be expanding, the logical consequence of that. He ended up adding something to it in 1917 called the cosmological constant. In that cosmological constant, he, he plugged that into the formula to create what was commonly believed at the time to be a completely static universe. A universe not subject to time. A universe that is all there is and all there ever was and all there ever will be. He plugged that in, in there to make that work that way. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Aristotle believed that the sun and the moon and the stars are eternal and therefore imperishable. He's using the word eternity according to the first method, that is of infinite time. He trusted that all things that move are in time with matter itself being eternal in that respect. But he also held to the belief that all things that are in motion were necessarily set in motion by a mover. So his reference with respect to God is that he is the prime mover. He is the very first mover of all things. So there you have it. There you've got it. 2.4 thousand years of effort. The first three words of the Bible are effectively in error. So for the first almost two and a half thousand years, a critic will look at the Bible and he would say, in the beginning, well, there was no beginning. In the beginning, you can't have in the beginning in the Bible because there was no beginning. So straight away, the Bible is in error. What does he propose? What does the critic propose it should start? He believes it should start perhaps once upon a time. Once upon a time. And it's true, because you see, if you're going to disagree with or you're going to remove the first three words of the Bible, then it's a matter of logic that the rest of the Bible can't be trusted. The rest of the Bible is simply fables and stories and myths. So once upon a time is a really good way of actually starting the Bible as far as this gentleman is concerned, or this critic would be concerned. But in the 1960s, you had a certain amount of rumbling within science. There was some groundswell that was starting to build up because as the scientists were starting to discover things, both scientifically and philosophically, that we cannot have an infinite regress of time, there started to become the belief that perhaps there was a beginning. And this belief was was getting on the nerves of scientists because they understood that if they have a beginning to deal with, then potentially they're going to have to deal with a beginner. 
And that is a real problem in science. They don't want a beginner. They don't want God to exist. They don't want the world to be that way. But you couldn't help it. It was already discovered that Einstein's cosmological constant was an error. They discovered that the universe is indeed expanding. If the universe is expanding, then it can't have been there infinitely, can it? You've got a problem. Then mathematically they worked out that the cosmological constant that Einstein put into place was in error. It's been known historically as the greatest error of his career. We're not sure if he actually said that. Some people say that he said it, um, but there's no evidence that he actually said that. But, uh, but it's been known as the greatest error of his career. Then, in 1965, Dr Arno Penzias discovered what was known as the background radiation of the universe. Just to give you a little bit of an understanding of what that is. The idea is basically that the entire universe, if it is, exists infinitely, it has to be infinitely, it has to be um, completely cold. Right? There can't be any average heat in the universe. It has to have come down to a temperature known as absolute zero. Absolute zero is the temperature that goes down to 273 degrees below zero. Okay, that's absolute zero. If it's any warmer than that, if there are elements within the universe that's a little bit warmer than that, than absolute zero, the universe can't have been here for all eternity. Let me explain it this way. If you walked into a room and there's a candle burning in the room, you've opened the door, you've walked in, you feel a certain radiant heat coming from the candle. The closer you go to the candle, the more warmth you feel, right? Okay, but say you came back a few days later, candle's been long burnt out, and you walk into that room, can you feel any radiant heat from anywhere? No, it's universally cold within that room. It doesn't have that radiant heat. Well, in 1965, Dr. Arno Penzias discovered, by accident, mind you, that the universe, the average temperature, the background radiation of the universe was three degrees above absolute zero. Three degrees above absolute zero, so essentially 270 degrees below our normal, our normal zero. And there you have the beginning of what's known today as Big Bang cosmology. I love that. When I first heard it, I was only a kid, you know. I heard, um, I heard yeah, yeah, everything started with a Big Bang. And I go, that's science? That's the word that they use? Big Bang? God, I thought it would be something a little bit more technical, you know. No, nah, it's Big Bang, you know. Yeah, yeah, the Big Bang and everything and we all come into being. Very strange. Very strange. Arno Penzias says this, he says, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. In another journal he writes this, this is fascinating. He says, The best data we have about the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. It's coming from a scientist. I won't bore you with a number of quotations I have. I have quite a large list of quotations from scientists that speak about this entire universe as being anything but accidental. And the odds are astronomical. Pardon the pun. In the beginning, we have space, time, and matter. Space, time, and matter. You can't separate those. Because space, time and matter 
fill and are part of this universe. We have a trinity of reality within this universe and one that actually demonstrates to us the Godhead. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So in the beginning, time began. My second point. My second point. In the beginning, God is. What's fascinating about this passage in verse 1? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The first three words demonstrate the beginning of time. The fourth word, God, infers logically to us one who was already present in the beginning. He was already there. For millennia, children have asked the question, you know, we know that everything that's made has a maker, yeah? What's the question that most children ask with respect to God? What is it? Who made God? That's incredible. A child understands the scientific theory of cause and effect. Where did they learn that? Well, they didn't need to learn it, you see, because it's already built in. We understand, just as nature tells us here, that there is cause and there is effect. Every effect has a cause to the effect. So a child can understand it. So without being taught. But the very making concerning this universe is an event or a series of events that happened in time. Turn your Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. What we are claiming is that God was already there. He was already present. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. So this is that scene where Moses is um, on the mount. He's found the burning bush and God has spoken to him out of the bush concerning his people Israel. And in verse 11, Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee and this shall be a token unto thee, unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. On the surface, you don't think that's significant. On the surface, we wouldn't think that that's particularly important as far as the people of Israel are concerned. But understand something really important, that God knew exactly what he needed to refer to himself as, to his own people, that they would know who he is. Let me explain why. In ancient Egypt, you, they worshipped a pantheon of gods. Now, the high priests of that pagan religion, religious system that they had already identified in one God. They understood and believed that there was one God. Historical evidence actually tells us this. But they broke down the attributes of God into many gods. So you have now historically the God of the sea, the God of thunder, the God of the underworld, the God of commerce, the God of money. You have these attributes. Now, 
every single God who had that particular attribute was named according to the attribute. You guys know this in, in the Bible, yeah? We, we understand this. We know that the names all have meanings within Scripture, right? Every name has meaning. We know that um, Emmanuel, what does Emmanuel mean? Yeah, God with us, you know? We know Jesus means Saviour. We know Adam means man, okay? So we know that all of these names that people are given were names that were given according to their attributes. So the gods of ancient Egypt were named according to their attributes. And here we have God referring to himself. And he refers to himself as I am. And so important. You see, even though Israel... Remember something, Israel have been in the land now for 430 years. So they've been there for a long time. So there's elements of the culture of the Egyptians that have now come into the Israelites. And we see that when they go out into the wilderness, don't we? We see that they've made themselves a, a golden calf. We see that they gave, put reliefs on the side of that as well. These be thy gods, O Israel. We see the influence of the Egyptian culture upon these people. But we also know that they were set apart. They were set apart into the land of Goshen. They were set apart and they retained their culture. Interestingly... 430 years went by and they kept their language. Their language wasn't deteriorated. They still retained that communication between one another. And it grew. Or strangers in a strange land. But God knew his people and, would, and he knew his people would recognise him as the sheep who know their shepherd, who are called by his name. And so too will this sheep know the calling of the shepherd of Israel. And they certainly did. So with the name I am, we can know a few things. We can know that he is immutable. I am does not change. We can know that he's ever present. I am cannot be past or yet future. We know that he's self-existent. The, word, the name I am has no need of anything or anyone else to exist. We know that he is eternal. I am has no concern of time. And we know also that he's personal. I am. He's personal. Five things that we can know about the character of God in a three-letter word, say. Incredible, isn't it? Just with that one word. They can identify him. 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got this fascinating quote by Plato. Now, you want to recall that Plato was the teacher of Aristotle. Okay, he was the student of Socrates and the teacher of Aristotle. And they differed between Plato and Aristotle on the nature of reality. Plato held that the perfect and the ideal is in heaven. And everything that we have here is just a representation of it, but an imperfect one. Regarding creation, this is what Plato said. He said, For there were no days and nights and months and years before the heaven was created. But when he constructed the heaven, he created them also. They are all parts of time, and the past and future are created species of time, which we unconsciously but wrongly transfer the, to the eternal essence. He's referring to God. And he goes on, he says this. He says, For we say that he was, he is, he will be. But the truth is that is alone is properly, properly attributed to him and that he 
and that was and will be are only to be spoken of becoming in time, for they are motions. But that which is immovable, the same cannot become older or younger by time. This is in Plato's dialogues. He is. Isn't that very similar to I am? Very similar, isn't it? This is something that Plato realised. Plato is a Greek philosopher. He wasn't a Hebrew. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Greek philosopher. But what does this tell us? This tells us exactly what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1. It says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even what? His eternal power and Godhead. Why? Well, it goes on, it says, because for, so they are without excuse. See, all men have the ability to know the reality of God. They all have the ability. And Plato was able to bring that out. And interestingly, he goes on in the next paragraph and he says this with regards to time. He says, these are forms of time which imitates eternity and revolves according to a law of number. It was framed after the pattern of the eternal nature that it might resemble this as far as was possible. For the pattern exists from eternity and, it created heaven, and the created heaven has been and is and will be in all time. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Book of Hebrews chapter 8, one of my favourite books, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. The explanation. Remember when Moses went up into the mount? Remember when he went up into the mountain and he came down after that meeting with God and he came down with the Ten Commandments? When he came down with the Ten Commandments, he didn't just come down with the Ten Commandments, he came down with something else. He came down with a pattern of the temple. And when you, when you read that in Exodus, you'll see that God spoke to him a lot more than just the commandments. Have a look at um, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Have a look at the next chapter, chapter, chapter 9. I'll just go down to verse, verse 22. Verse 22, we'll just read a handful of verses here. It says, And almost all things by the law uh, are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now don't think for a moment that I hold Plato's views too highly, please. What I wanted to bring out here was simply that there was an individual in history past who we have his writings today who recognises the attributes of God within the heavens. The heavens declaring the glory of God. So here we have a picture. Time to us is a picture of eternity. But it is not eternity. There's a distinction between the two. Third point. It goes back to that portion in Genesis chapter 1. And in the beginning man would come is the point. In verse 26 it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Here then we have another image. We've got another image now. And it's man created in the image of God. Do you see how this is progressing forward for us? Now arguments that we find in atheism is that we make up gods in our own images. We make up gods according to our own image. You guys make up gods according to your own image. And you do that because you want to make yourself feel important and secure. Oh, that might be true when it comes to the pagan gods of Greece and, and Rome. Um, they certainly, and these, these pagan gods of Greece and Rome, they're artefacts held, um, handed down from ancient Egypt and Babylon. But uh, in these gods, they certainly do behave like men and women today. They, uh, they lie, you know, they cheat, they steal, they commit adultery, they commit murder. They're very much like people today, these gods. Um, they don't ever seem to work. You ever see the picture of those gods who are always lounging about doing nothing, you know, maybe having a little bit of fun with the humans down the bottom there, um, directing their paths and so forth. But when it comes to man, according to this passage that we're looking at, it was not we creating gods in our image, but we were created in the image of God. And no other creature had this benefit. No, no animal, no angelic being was specifically created in God's own image. The Bible tells us we were created for fellowship with him. Our origin was good, the Bible says. We, man walked with God in the cool of the day. Walked with God in the cool of the day. But man rebelled against his maker. And now... Well, what communion hath light with darkness? What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Second Corinthians. Our sin has separated us from the communion with God and propelled us instead into, communicate, into communion with the devil. Our relationship is now with him. Man now has a new father and his end would be our end. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, Ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father ye will do. He said, I speak that which I have seen with my father and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. When revealing the parable of the tares and the wheat, Jesus tells his disciples that the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Friends, our sin has spiritually transferred our image to that of the devil. According to the Bible, he has now become our father. Our inheritance is that received from our father. Think about that. See, if your father is the Lord, if your father is God, your inheritance is his and him. If your father is not God, then it is only of the devil and your inheritance is his inheritance. It's the same. It's the same one. Remember I said before, and the Bible teaches us, that hell was not created for man. It was not created for man, but for the devil and his angels. But our sin has altered our likeness, and we fall into the same condemnation as the devil. It's no secret that the devil hates God. 
But not only does he hate God, he also hates those whose very image reminds him of God. Man fallen is not enough for him. He desires that every part of man will be diametrically opposed to God. And he does this through deception and blinding. Speaking of the wonder of the gospel, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Let the light, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The Bible tells us that our very rejection of God is going to affect our own minds. Isn't it incredible to think about that? Just the rejection of God will affect our own minds. It says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, the Oxford English Dictionary refers to a reprobate mind this way. It refers to the word reprobate. It says that it's of abandoned character, uh, lost to all sense of religious or moral obligation, unprincipled, depraved, degraded, morally corrupt. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, he says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put light, darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We are living. We are living in those days. We're living in those days where things that are good are turned upside down to be bad. And things that are bad are being sanctified and lifted up and put on as good. We're living in those days, friends. And it's no coincidence that those days happen to coincide with the rejection of God. It's no coincidence that that's the case. And that's what we have today. God created life, but Satan is a murderer. God loves truth, but Satan is a liar. In John 8:44, speaking to the rulers of Israel at the time, Jesus says, "Ye are of your father the devil." And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. Murder. Do you know why God's instructed man not to murder? Other than that it's not a good thing. Do you know why God has instructed man not to murder? In the Old Testament, he says this in Genesis 9, 6. He said, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. We're instructed not to kill one another because we are made in the image of God. There is a natural sense of being that sin would affect in man who says unto God, depart from us, we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. See, for once man kills any knowledge of God in his mind, he has no problems harming those who were created in his image. Does that make sense to you? So once man kills any knowledge of God within his mind, then he has no problem harming those who were created in his image. And we see that today. Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? And Frederick Nietzsche just so happened to precede the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. God is love. Satan is the devil. You know, 
to trust in and love God, we naturally love as God loves. You know? And that's why Christians who really trust in the Lord naturally love. We do something that is unheard of in the world. We love our enemies. We do good to those who, who would treat us poorly. We pray for those who would despitefully use us and persecute us. Why would we do this if it were not for eternity? Why would we do this? If everything just was based on the now and my present comfort, why would I give a glass of water to my enemy? Why would I nourish him? Why would I nourish him and give him the energy only to beat me again? Brethren, this, these persecutions are happening around the world and it won't surprise me if it happens in Australia in time to come. It may not happen. We may, we may not be here. But it may. Are you prepared? Are you thinking about eternity? Are you concerned only with that which is forever? We don't know who we're going to be able to um, have come to Christ. But let me, let me sum this point up with this. If we would hate God, we will naturally also hate man. Atheism is directly responsible for the death of hundreds of millions of people under the regimes of Stalin. 20 to 50 million people, his own people, he killed. Adolf Hitler speaks for itself. Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao in China, 50 million people died under his rule. Pol Pot, 20% of the population of Cambodia within three years. 20% of the population. Kim Il-sung from North Korea, he had 24 million slaves. Essentially in North Korea, that's exactly what they are today. They are still slaves. Augusto Pinochet, he was responsible for the disappearances in Chile. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden your next door neighbours aren't there. Where'd they go? No one knows. This happened to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in Chile. It also happened in Argentina. Idi Amin from Uganda lifted up and applauded by the UN, was essentially a cannibal and how he treated his own people. These are atheistic regimes. And, that, and that's just, a, that's just a, a really just a light finger touch over the number of regimes that had the same views. Hyper-environmental movement that we have today. Interesting, isn't it? No problems. We want to save the baby seal, but we are happy with abortion. There seems to be a distinction there. They want to replenish the earth with animals, but they want to reduce human population on the earth by 6.5 billion people. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. The Ten Commandments of the Ark of Hope has a global population level of 500 million people only. We need to reduce down to 500 million people. Have a listen to this. This is their, this is their version of sustainable development. That's what they mean. Jacques Cousteau. Anybody remember who Jacques Cousteau is? He's that wonderful explorer. We used to watch his stuff on, uh, on television and he'd, he'd, he'd have these submarines and everything that would go right under and explore everything under the waters. It was really exciting to watch that. He had, this is his quote when he spoke to UNESCO, who's part of the UN. Uh, uh, the UNESCO Curia, it's, in, it's this quote, and he says, it's, um, oh, he's speaking about this with, uh, by way of eliminating suffering and disease, um, so in order to eliminate suffering disease in the world, effectively you have to eliminate man. Let me, let me show you his quote. He says, It's terrible to have to say this. World population must be stabilised and to do that we must eliminate 350,000 people per day. This is so horrible to contemplate that we shouldn't even say it 
But the general situation in which we are involved is lamentable. How incredible. Did you know that? So if you've got a sore arm, cut it off. You don't have an arm to be sore anymore. If your eye's stinging, pluck it out. You don't have to need to worry about disease and suffering if there are no people to suffer from it, do you? See, hating God equals hating man. Desiring the death of God leads to desiring the death of man. Deicide leads eventually to homicide. The two work together. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. Created in His image. And the devil hates that image. And all who hate God have the devil as their father. That's why. That's why. Revelation 6.4, speaking about the time of the tribulation, he says this. He says, And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Sadly, we know that as men turn away from God, they will turn on one another. Satan desires that all created in the image of God would perish. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is why Christ came. And it introduces my last point. In the end, time will not be. That which begins will also have an end. And that which never begun will never cease to be. Sounds really profound, doesn't it? I liked it when I wrote it. Wow, that really sounds smart. But it's so true. See, God never began. He never began. And he will never cease to be. And what's incredible is that our life that we now possess in Christ is a life that emanates from him. He had no beginning. He has no end. And you know what? Our life is hid with Christ in God, says Colossians 3.3. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The ultimate exchange... The most important transfer that you can make is your life for Christ. Your life for Christ. Jesus is the medium of exchange for that happy country we call heaven. The transfer is our sin for his righteousness. Our sin for his righteousness. And the Redeemer is Christ. The choice we have is whether we are to keep our sin or to transfer it. Jesus says, He that loveth his life shall lose it, but he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. There is no time in eternity, yet we will all inherit eternity. In Daniel chapter 12, 2, he says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The word everlasting is used synonymously with the word eternal. It's always referring to that which is hereafter. What is curious is what, we, uh, is what it refers to in Scripture. 
and it always refers to damnation, fire, life, God and his characteristics, mercy and righteousness, etc. It refers to his kingdom. This is everlasting and eternal when those words are used together. It's used with respect to Israel and it's, res- and it's used respecting the gospel. Guys, it's a wonderful way of being able to study the word of God. Study how God uses words. You, know, you have the word of God. I believe I have the very word of God. Okay? When I'm looking at the authorised version, I'm looking at the very word of God. I believe that not a single word is there by accident. Now, having said that, having said that, if that's true, then as we look at the words, have a look at what they're linked up with. Why is it that every time I look at the word eternal or everlasting, it's always in respect to those things that I've just mentioned? It's never respecting anything else. It's respecting that which will be forever, for all eternity. So finally, it sets the purpose for our life. And I'll finish with this. What eternity is so important, it, 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 it gives us a guiding principle for our lives. You see, it doesn't matter what happens around me. It doesn't matter what falls apart. It matters only in light of eternity. And how you live your life today, how you live your life today, the grace that you can share with other people, you are affecting other people's eternity and you'll receive a reward. You'll receive the reward. So I have no problems with dedicating my life to doing that which God sees has eternal benefit to others because it has that benefit coming back. Every decision that you make has eternal consequences. You're transferring what you do on earth directly into eternity. So, when we struggle with sin, go to the Lord. Spend time with Him in prayer. Go on your knees before Him and humble yourself before Him. It's not unusual, brethren. It's not unusual. We all struggle when it comes to sin. We all do. But remember what I said? It's not going to be a mixture in eternity. You won't suffer wrath for your sin here on earth if you are hid in Christ with God. Right? It is only reward in eternity. But that is not the other way around. Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth uh, lay not up. Sorry. Sorry about that. Lay not up for yourselves. I used to do that all the time and I used to just cancel out that not, you know. So that was my life. I wanted to store up treasures on earth. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Each of you can add to that treasure. Um, Not one held in earthen vessels, but safeguarded in eternity. Your soul should be the first transferred. Your heart next. And your hope last. When we have our soul transferred, then let's give our heart to the Lord completely. And that's when you're going to find your hope. Your true hope is going to be found in Him and in eternity. This done, your work on earth will not lose its reward and will continue to add to an account that will never diminish but will shine like the stars of heaven. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. My last verse. Daniel chapter 12. You will find it after the Psalms and after Ezekiel. 
It's really, really good to always know where things are located in your scriptures. Know that there are 17 historical books in the Bible. They are all located well before the Psalms start. And there are also 17 prophetical books in the Bible. They are located after the Psalms. Psalms are usually a good midpoint to work with. Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 3. And I wanted you to turn to this so you can have a look at the context. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And we consider the context, have a look at the verse just before it. That's the one that we just read. What's true is that we have hope in eternity, and we have hope with Christ. And if you don't know Christ, then I would encourage you to come to know him. If you don't know who he is, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Next week, we're going to be asking the question, what is the gospel? We're going to be asking that for the next two weeks, and I pray that you'll be here and you'll enjoy it and get a blessing from it. But the gospel essentially is an understanding of eternity as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your blessing. We thank you for your word. We thank you, dear Lord, that it can be understood and believed. We pray, dear Father, your continual blessing toward us and that we may grow in the hope and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, dear Lord, that should you tarry, Father, that you will bring us safely together again next week. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.